Chapter 22 of the Story of Gladstone's Life by Justin McCarthy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. National Education, Other Reforms. These early years of Mr. Gladstone's administration were years of tremendous energy and reform. It almost takes one's breath away to recall the many splendid reforming enterprises on which Mr. Gladstone ventured with a courage that seemed never to be daunted. He set himself to work to establish a great system of national education for England. Strange to say, up to that time, there had been no public system of elementary education in England. The state had doled out a miserable grant to the help of private charity for the teaching of the children of the poor. England was behind many of the countries of the civilized world in this respect. She was far behind Prussia and most of the German states. She was far behind nearly all, if not all, of the states of the American Union. This, in fact, was the first time when the principle was set up that the state ought to provide for and enforce a popular elementary education. I do not propose to go into the details of this measure, and for one reason, because it was not put into form by Mr. Gladstone's own personal inspiration. There were indeed some parts of it which did not commend themselves altogether to his feelings or his judgment, but he adopted it as, on the whole, the best scheme that then had a chance of success. It, too, like the Irish land measure, has been the subject of much controversy and many schemes of alteration and improvement. But like the Irish land bill also, it made a new departure and established a new principle. A measure was carried in 1871 to substitute the ballot for open voting in the elections for the House of Commons. Mr. Gladstone had at one time been opposed to the ballot, as indeed most other public men in England had been. It is a curious fact that Mr. Gladstone began as an opponent of the ballot and afterwards became convinced by practical experience and observation that the secret vote, on the whole, was far better than the open system. While Mr. John Stuart Mill who began as an advocate of the ballot, had ended as its opponent. The bill went through both houses and was carried into law. Not the faintest idea now exists in the mind of any English public man of proposing to repeal the measure. The immemorial British fashion of recording one's vote in public and thereby leaving the tenant at the mercy of his landlord the small shopkeeper at the mercy of the local magnate, the factory worker at the mercy of the factory owner, is almost forgotten now in this country. Educated young people of the present generation would probably find it hard to believe that such a system with all its glaring and monstrous abuses could ever have existed in a civilized country. Another great abuse which Mr. Gladstone abolished was the system of purchase of commissions in the army, the system under which a young man with money bought himself an officer's commission and bought step by step 
his subsequent stages of promotion. So far as I remember, no such system was known in the army of any other great and civilized state. Mr. Gladstone was determined on abolishing it, and as he found that the House of Lords was determined to stand in the way, he abolished it himself by what I may call a constitutional coup d'etat. It came about in this manner. Purchase in the army was allowed and established by the warrant of the sovereign alone. The whole practice was therefore dependent upon royal regulation. It was in the power of the sovereign at any moment to say that the purchase of commissions should cease. Now the House of Commons, the representative assembly, had under Mr. Gladstone's inspiration pronounced against the purchase system. The House of Lords still held out in its favor. Mr. Gladstone, therefore, acting on his constitutional authority as Prime Minister, advised the Queen to cancel the royal warrant, which authorized the buying and selling of commissions in the army. The Queen, who is the first and only constitutional sovereign who ever sat on the throne of England, acted on the advice of her Prime Minister. A new royal warrant was at once issued, declaring that all purchase or sale of commissions in the army must come to an end. This step taken by Mr. Gladstone raised a storm of controversy in the country. Even some of his own followers, some of the most advanced radicals in Parliament, were strongly against it. There could be no doubt that the exercise of the royal power in abolishing the purchase system was perfectly constitutional. The question raised was whether the Prime Minister was justified in thus cutting short a great parliamentary controversy by the sudden interposition of the royal prerogative. There can be no doubt that Mr. Gladstone's course was a bold one, bold even to the extent of audacity. Probably, if he had been content to wait, the reform would have been carried in the following session. It is certain that the abolition of purchase in the army and the principle of promotion thereby merit has come to be accepted now by the universal public opinion of England. There again is a reform introduced by Mr. Gladstone which nobody in his senses would think of trying to repeal. But this is just what people were saying who condemned the advice which brought about the intervention of the royal prerogative. Why not wait, they said. The abolition of purchase is certain to come, now that the House of Commons and public opinion have declared against the practice. Why give any excuse for the argument that the Prime Minister has cut short public controversy on a great public question by a course of action which is absolutely without precedent. There is a great deal to be urged in favor of this argument. I said so at the time. I put my opinions on record more lately, and I am ready to say the same thing now. But at present, the purchase system having been abolished forever, one's chief interest is in the action of Mr. Gladstone himself. It was a splendid instance of political intrepidity. It carried a great reform. It was not in violation of any constitutional principle. On the contrary, 
it still further emphasized the duty of the sovereign to act on the advice of the minister, and it won a great battle. End of chapter 22